Section 10 of Here and Hereafter by Barry Payne. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Here and Hereafter by Barry Payne. Some notes on Cyrus Verd. The name of Cyrus Verd, once so frequently seen in the newspapers, and heard in conversation, has now for many years past been rarely mentioned. The absolute retirement of the latter part of his life helped the public, always ready to forget, to forget him. A few weeks ago at the club I happened to say something or other about him, and a man who, as a rule, knows his world, turned to me and asked who Cyrus Verd was. The obituary notice of him in the Times the other day may possibly have revived interest in what was really rather an extraordinary personality. But the notice was brief, and beyond names and dates said little more than that he was an eccentric millionaire who, at the age of forty-five, chose to surrender almost the whole of his wealth and live a life of comparative poverty. It is said that this step was the result of some curious religious convictions, but Cyrus Verd himself never in his lifetime offered any explanation of it. The few notes which I propose to add, including as they do a personal reminiscence of the man, may possibly be of interest. A writer of fiction constantly arranges his problem to suit his solution of it. It is perhaps beneficial, though somewhat humiliating, that he should occasionally turn his attention to the problems that real life sets him, and see how much more difficult it is to find the solution then. Cyrus Verd came to England in his thirty-fourth year, at an age at which many men are only at the commencement of their career. He had already made his fortune. I cannot say exactly how rich he was. Many newspaper paragraphs at the time gave estimates of his annual income, all different. I should say that the only man who really knew was Cyrus Verd himself. He owned steamships, railways, factories, mines, and enough land for a small nation. On his arrival in London, many stories were told of his extravagance and eccentricity. He was debating where he should reside, and a friend suggested that he should take or build a house in Park Lane. Where is Park Lane? asked Cyrus Verd. He had been only two days in London. Runs along the east side of Hyde Park in the most fashionable quarter. Your coachman would know it. Verd went to look at it and returned. Yes, he said, it would be a fair site for a house. One house. But there seems to be some brick tenements there of some sort or other already. I suppose I could get those cleared away? He made the attempt and was very angry at first when he found that he could not get those cleared away but he soon grew more philosophical. Your people, he observed, cling to their little homes, I guess. He was always much disappointed at first if he found there was anything which he could not buy. He went over the National Gallery alone one morning. He was a judge of pictures and occasionally put a pencil cross on his catalogue. When he got downstairs again, he said to the man who handed him his umbrella, My name's Cyrus Verd. I'm at the Metropole. Write that down. Send me round the things I've marked on my list and my secretary will hand you the cheque. This story was much exaggerated in the newspapers. It was said that he had offered to buy the entire National Gallery, building and all, as it stood. I cannot say whether or not there was any truth in the report which appeared about the same time to the effect that he had endeavoured to buy the crown jewels, but as far as I can judge his character, it does not seem impossible. At the same time, it would be rash to attempt to judge his character only from such reports as these. The secretary of a well-known charitable institution made that mistake. 
he wrote to ask for a donation to the institution and guaranteed that it should be acknowledged by public advertisement in four of the leading dailies. Cyrus Verd wrote back that he had much pleasure in accepting the offer and enclosed four pence in stamps. The acknowledgement appeared as promised and once more made Cyrus Verd a common topic of conversation. But one of the strangest things that he did never got into the newspapers at all. He left, intentionally, ten pounds in gold on the seat of a railway carriage. On the following day he inquired at the lost property office if the money had been brought back. He was told, with a smile, that it had not been brought back and that there was no earthly probability that it ever would be. He repeated the experiment and again failed to recover the money. He repeated it twenty times on different lines and at last a carriage cleaner found the money and brought it back. Cyrus Verd took the name and address of that carriage cleaner, made inquiries about him and then sent for him. I don't see why I should reward you at all. It's the company's business, you're their servant, and such actions as yours increase the feelings of security and confidence in their passengers. Are you suited to a better position than you've got? Yes, I am, said the man. I'm a steady man, and I've a talent for figures. I'm known for it among my mates. Call on the chairman of directors. Here's his private address. Give him my card, explain the circumstances, and tell him from me that he's to put you in a position of trust with at least three times your present wages. The man came back to say that the chairman had laughed at him, had said that he was not the man to whom the application should have been made, and that there was no chance of it being entertained in any case. I must go and see him myself then, said Cyrus Verd. The chairman was not in a very good temper. Really, Mr. Verd, you'll be asking me to carry your luggage next. It's no part of my duties as chairman of the directors to undertake business of this kind. What that man ought to have done, he did what I told him. You can get this put through if you like, will you? Frankly, I won't. It creates a precedent. It... One moment, sir. If you'll have a copy of Bradshaw brought in here, I'll show you something. Now, the chairman knew that Cyrus Verd was eccentric, and so he was not surprised... He did not respect eccentricity, but he respected capital, and he knew that Cyrus Verd had already, thanks to his capital, had some little games with railway companies. So he rang the bell, and a Bradshaw was brought. When the servant had gone, Verd drew a penny-blue chalk pencil from his pocket. He opened the Bradshaw, unfolded the map, and without saying a word made certain marks upon it. The chairman watched him closely, and his face changed. "'Who's going to do it?' he gasped. Then he repented, as a man does repent, when he has given himself away. "'Parliament?' he said. "'That's all right,' remarked Cyrus Verd, replacing his blue pencil. "'I've asked. They daren't block it.' "'It wouldn't pay,' the chairman said, with an effort at the careless smile. "'That matters only to the man who runs it. Either way, it would wreck your line and you. "'As my time here is short, don't pretend that it wouldn't, "'because, of course, I know that you know that it would.' "'Am I to understand,' said the chairman angrily, "'that you come here to threaten me with this new line?' "'Well, I was talking about a carriage cleaner. "'I want him rewarded. "'I want it done right away. "'When I want anything done, "'I don't tell myself that I won't spend more than a couple of millions on getting it done. "'Men like you ought not to be allowed to live. "'I tell you that plainly, Mr. Verd. "'There are no men like me. "'Good afternoon, then.' Oh, wait, wait. The man deserves to be rewarded. Only these things must be done in the regular way. If he will write to... I'm going to no underlings. 
said Cyrus Road, and I'm in a hurry. Next time I mark that map, those marks will stop there. The chairman seemed suddenly to recollect something. What was this about a carriage cleaner? Oh, yes, it's irregular, but naturally you wouldn't understand. I'll see about it myself. When? Within six weeks. Days? Weeks. Then it shan't be days. It shall be within six hours. A position of trust and three times his present wages within six hours. The way you talk makes me tired. If you know enough to come in when it rains, I guess you'll drop this argument. The chairman did drop it and that same night the carriage cleaner received the official intimation of his promotion. Cyrus Verd was young, fabulously wealthy, and unmarried. He was a tall, broad-shouldered man. He was not exactly handsome, but he had that look of power which, in the eyes of women, does just as well. When he first came over he was the hope of many noble matrons with unmarried daughters. He afterwards became their despair, and this was in consequence of his marriage with Anna Folkes a woman who had neither wealth nor high position. She had been a governess. She was remarkably beautiful, but her beauty was somewhat discounted by the fact that she had, or was said to have, a trace of negro blood in her veins. When this marriage was announced, a certain noble matron said a cruel thing to Cyrus Verd. She congratulated him sardonically on having no racial prejudices. "'I shall remember your kind words, Countess,' he said pleasantly. Within a year, the Countess was a ruined woman. Evidence came to her husband's knowledge which led him to divorce her. This terrible fall was closely followed by the loss of a part of her private income. She was left without a friend in the world and with much reduced means, a disgraced woman. There were some who said that Cyrus Verd had remembered those kind words. But if he was responsible for her exposure and ruin, he was careful not to let any evidence of his actions appear. It was seven years after his marriage that, as the times of bitterly states, he gave up almost the whole of his property. He prepared a long list of relations and friends of himself and of his wife, and of certain charitable and religious institutions in which they were interested. He reserved for himself an annual income of £500 only, which to a man who had lived as a millionaire for years would be abject poverty. The remainder was divided among these relations, friends and institutions, and made over to them by deed of gift. Of course, many people said that he was mad. If he was, his wife was mad also, for the step that he took was planned by him with her, and she fully agreed to it. Personally, I do not think he was mad. I had expected him to take that step, and I think I could produce evidence that in a private letter I actually foretold it. For it happened by chance that I came upon him when he was in the enjoyment of what he called his annual holiday, and it was significant. It was in an out-of-the-way Welsh village, one year before his marriage. I was stopping there because it was out-of-the-way chiefly. I had some work to do. Cyrus Verd was there in a caravan, and he was masquerading. He was H. Jackson photographer. A travelling photographer in a very small way of business, with showcases of fly-blown photographs of posed rustics affixed to the outside of his caravan. He wore a shabby serge suit, much stained with chemicals, and a soft felt hat. He had not attempted to disguise his face. He had never allowed any portrait of himself to appear in any illustrated paper, shop window, or public gallery, and probably considered himself safe from recognition. But I had once been in the same drawing-room with Cyrus Verd and he had been pointed out to me. He was not a man who could easily be forgotten. 
I never had the least doubt that the shabby man who stood touting for custom outside that caravan was Cyrus Verd. I allowed him to photograph me. I remembered that the price was seven shillings and sixpence for a dozen, and that he bothered me to take two dozen for fourteen shillings. No thanks, Mr. Verd, I said. He seemed to reflect for a moment, and then he asked me how I knew. I told him where I'd met him. It's my only enjoyment, he said. You won't spoil it. Everybody thinks I'm yachting. I won't spoil it, I said. You might enjoy it always if you cared so much about it. No, I couldn't. Thank you. I am obliged to you. All right, I said. Good morning, and I moved off. He called me back again. You'll excuse me, he said, but you've not paid for those photographs. You haven't printed them yet. My rule is that payment must be made at the time of sitting. Well, I won't pay for a thing until I get it. We squabbled about it and finally came to a compromise. Then, rather abruptly, he asked me to come to supper with him that night. And I warn you, he said, that I live solely on what I make by this photographic business. Of course, I went. We had supper in the caravan. It consisted of chops and potatoes, which Cyrus Verd cooked. He cooked better than he photographed. We drank beer, which Verd had fetched from the public house in a jug. He had no servant with him, and did everything for himself. I jeered at him gently all through supper. It's very pretty, I said, but it's play-acting. It's not genuine. It's absolutely genuine. I tell you that I love simplicity. Had I my choice, I would always go on like this, and like the work too. In this little village, I've already picked up enough orders to keep me busy for a week. Every year I have a month of this, and I look forward to it as I look forward to nothing else. What? I said. Do you think that this sort of thing proves that you love simplicity? It proves the absolute contrary, that you love variety. No one is compelled to live the life of a rich man against his will. If you live that life for eleven months in the year, and the life of a poor man for one month, you like to be rich eleven times as much as you like to be poor. What you say, he said, sounds plausible, but you don't know the circumstances. I am sorry I cannot offer you a cigar. H. Jackson, photographer, cannot afford to smoke cigars. I have my own case here, I said. I selected a cigar, lit it, put the case back in my pocket and watched Cyrus Verd. The fragrance reached him. He grew uneasy. He rose and began to put the supper things away in silence. Shall I help you? I asked. No, he said snappishly. He held out for about five minutes and then said, Give me one of those cigars. He opened the case with trembling hands and took no notice of my amusement at first. When his cigar was lit and the first sigh of satisfaction was over, he appeared aggrieved and asked me what I was laughing at. Go back and be a millionaire, I said. You dress this part well and, glancing round the caravan, it's very correctly staged. But you make the feeblest H. Jackson peripatetic photographer that ever disgraced the British drama. Listen, he said eagerly. H. Jackson is a poor man. As a rule, he smokes cheap shag in a clay. A gentleman comes along and offers him a cigar. H. Jackson jumps at the treat, of course. Where's the inconsistency? I didn't offer you a cigar. You asked for it. Cyrus Verd could do that, but H. Jackson could not. I've half a mind to pitch your beastly cigar out of the window. But he did not. He smoked that and others and talked delightfully had a fine sense of humour, and was willing enough to laugh at himself as a millionaire, 
but in the character of H. Jackson he had an ardent belief in himself and a strong desire to be taken seriously. After that, for a week, we always spent the evenings together. Gradually I guessed at the circumstances to which he had alluded. Near to the village was the country seat of a baronet, and Anna Folkes was governess to his children, and Cyrus Verd was in love with Anna Folkes. He had met her in the same place a year before. She and I knew who he really was, but no one else in the village did. Her method of procedure was simple. On the arrival of H. Jackson, she took the baronet's children to be photographed. Afterwards, she called every day to see if the photographs were finished. He was, in fact, engaged to her before the night on which I first had supper with him. A week after my return to town, I got a note from Cyrus Verd asking me to dine with him and assist at the funeral of H. Jackson. I accepted. We were alone, and the dinner was ridiculously magnificent. I congratulated him on his engagement, which that morning had been made public. He seemed in the best of spirits. After dinner, he said, I'm going to explain the death of H. Jackson. Money has power, and the novelty of possession is attractive, but any other kind of power is better worth while, and the novelty ceases. Also, I observed, time flies, and one must not judge by appearances. Yes, I quite understand what you would imply. I'm talking platitudes. I guess, if the platitude happens to be the truth, that doesn't matter. The actual enjoyment to be obtained from money must soon go, and can only be renewed in the enjoyment of another. I marry a poor woman who has worked in a subservient position. In her enjoyment, I shall enjoy again. Wealth and the power it gives will be so new and attractive to her that I may safely calculate on a fair period of very decent second-hand enjoyment. Consequently, H. Jackson may die. Wait, I said. Your wife's enjoyment will cease in the end, and yours with it. What then? Some women have a special gift for enjoying wealth forever, he said meditatively. But you're right. Miss Folkes has not that gift. Then, then, there will be a revival of H. Jackson or something very like it, perhaps in a less crude form. This practically ended my acquaintance with Cyrus Verd. At first I still saw him occasionally, but I could not afford to know millionaires and told him so. Afterwards, at the time when he renounced his wealth, I was away from England. I can see, of course, that a practised author might make something of a character, a consistent whole, out of Cyrus Verd. I only give notes of what came to my knowledge and confess that I have not the imagination requisite to connect them, supplement them, and give them that air of probability which is always found in the best fiction, and so seldom in real life. End of section 10